Today, May 40 here. So, what the hell happened in those elections? If you're expecting a red wave, obviously that that did not occur. So, what, what did happen? seem to have so much going for them, and yet they, they got very meager results. Well, for one thing, Republicans are definitely going to take the U.S. House of Representatives, and right now they stand 50% chance of taking the United States Senate. So just by taking the House of Representatives, they create divided government. That's definitely a big step forward for a conservative perspective. They still have a very good chance of taking the United States Senate. Republicans did well where they campaigned on crime. I don't think inflation was such a winning issue for them because Republicans didn't put forward any kind of credible plan that would have dealt with inflation. Definitely was not the red wave that we were expecting. So maybe he's going to explain this to us. Maybe Tucker Carlson. But we can't because in a number of key races around the country, we still don't have a vote total. In Arizona, for example, there is no declared winner in the Senate race or in the governor's race. At this point, it seems likely that both Kerry Lake and Blake Masters will win. We'll be speaking to Kerry Lake in just a minute about that. But according to news reports, the official results may not be in for more than a month. A month. Officials in Arizona told CNBC today that they are, quote, prepared to work through Thanksgiving and possibly Christmas as well. This is outrageous. Right? No other first world country takes weeks and weeks to get their election results. So every other first world nation can get their election results within hours of the polls closing. So maybe we need to switch to a model similar to what Australia employs, right, where elections are federalized and people are paid to set everything up and there are the same laws in all 50 states. Now, the federal system that the United States has does make for a little more chaos. There are also many advantages going with the federal system. So you have often county by county differences in laws, differences in voting regulations. The American voting system, by and large, is underwritten by volunteers. Right? Pretty much everywhere else in the first world of which I'm aware, people get paid to <laughs> to process election returns. So... This is ridiculous. Like, that th we should be waiting for two, three, four, five weeks to find out who really won the elections. That's crazy. That means results by New Year's in a race that was held in early November. That seems late. How late is it? Well, by comparison, the results of the 1862 midterm elections, which were tabulated by candlelight without machines or even electricity in the middle of a raging civil war, were clear before the end of the week. That was the entire country. Arizona is a single state, which, by the way, is a fraction of the size of Florida, which, as you may have noticed, counted its votes in less than a day. So did Brazil, an entire country. That seems embarrassing, if not like a full-blown emergency. Counting the votes isn't some added extra you get for government. If they have a surplus, like fighting climate change or bringing equity, counting the votes is a core function of government, along with law enforcement, maintaining the roads, keeping the border secure, efficient elections are the reason you pay taxes. But Arizona doesn't seem to have them. Why is that? Don't ask, Command Cena. So one thing I noticed from being in Australia compared to being in Los Angeles is that you don't pick up vibes of despair here, right? I haven't encountered despair down under. Now, I'm sure there's lots of despair here and there's anger here. I just haven't encountered it. So by and large, your average citizen of Los Angeles is not very happy with, with the direction of the city. I, I think your average resident of California is not very happy with the direction of the city. Your average resident of New York City or Chicago is not very happy with the direction of the city. I, I certainly don't pick up that vibe from people here in Sydney. So on the other hand, 
the, the value of the Australian dollar compared to the American dollar has fallen about 20% in, in the past three months. So in, in many ways, the United States looks to become even more dominant in the years ahead. So I'm not exactly sure why so much despair in the United States. I think it has to do with dramatic declines in the quality of living, primarily brought about by dramatic increases in murder rates, dramatic increases in car fatality and pedestrian rates. So an increased sense of disorder, increased homelessness, and a, a general sense of ineffective government. So I think that's what's, what's driving the despair. And Republicans found a winning issue with crime, but the inflation not so much. If you've got questions about this or any other election, no unauthorized questions. Instead, watch CNN. Or if you don't have cable, simply trust your local officials. You see, that's our first vote, and that's the wonder of democracy, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. And I wanted to point that out to be a little bit of the crank in the room following Brianna there. Stay off social media, people, if you're trying to figure out, if you're trying to figure out, are there really issues with voting? Trust your local officials. Trust us here. Trust a news source that you know and trust, to be honest about this. They're doing their jobs, and they're doing it right. They're doing their jobs. They're doing it right. <laughs> really, CNN? We get a little more report. Okay, so no one has the mantle of heaven, right? Social media is not inherently less trustworthy than CNN or Fox News or your local election officials. Uh, there are certainly people on social media who are less trustworthy, and there are other people on social media who are, who are more trustworthy. And sometimes social media is right, and sometimes CNN is right. right. No one group marked out by the will of heaven to always be right. How right are they doing it? It's pretty funny. But we digress. The state of our election systems in many places is indeed pretty embarrassing, but so honestly were the results of last night's elections. Republicans swore they were going to sweep a red tsunami. That's what they told us, and we, to be honest, cautiously believe them. But they did not sweep, not even close to sweeping. The Republican Party, in the end, may take control of the House and the Senate, but only by a tiny margin at best. That's great, but it was not the plan. The plan was really simple. It seemed easy a week ago. An unpopular president, a faltering economy, an open border, the looming risk of nuclear war. How about that? Put all those together, how could there not be a massive Republican win nationally? Wins everywhere. Well, there weren't. Some exceptions, but overall, there weren't. Joe Biden was not punished. In fact, he was out there bragging about himself today. Pretty frustrated. He wanted Republicans to win, not simply because they're so great, but because Democrats are so very bad. And that's not an overstatement. So what happened? Well, before we give you our theories as to what happened, one obvious point, the people whose job it was to win but did not win should go do something else now. We're speaking specifically of the Republican leadership of the House and the Senate and of the RNC. There's nothing personal. Some of them are no doubt nice people, but they took hundreds of millions of dollars to paint the map red, and they didn't. It doesn't mean they're evil. It doesn't mean they should be jailed. It does mean they shouldn't be promoted. No one should ever be rewarded for failure. If there's a truly conservative principle in life, it's the principle of the meritocracy. You reward excellence, you do not reward mediocrity. And when you do, things fall apart. Democrats kept promoting Tony Fauci, despite his obvious ineptitude. What is that? That's corruption. Republicans should never do anything like that. And if they do, what's the... Okay, I don't see... How, on what basis do you call Tony Fauci a fraud or a corrupt or ineffectual? He did his job... 95% of the time, he spoke for what was the mainstream scientific consensus at the time, and the mainstream scientific consensus changed on a lot of issues. And with regard to COVID, I need to update a talking point that I've said repeatedly on this show. I've pointed out that Australia in 2020, 2021, had approximately 140th the per capita death rate from COVID as the United States of America. So by, by the time I left Australia in January 2022, only about a thousand Australians have died from COVID. In last nine months, right, an additional 14,000 Australians have died from COVID. So per capita, just as many Australians approximately have died from
from COVID over the past year, as have Americans. So overall, Australians have a per capita death rate from COVID about one-fourth that of the United States. And it's not clear that uh, Australia's draconian response to COVID is responsible for that decline in, in death rates. We, we simply don't, don't know enough. So I don't side with the populist right-wing Fox News approach that uh, the Australian lockdowns were crazy, all lockdowns were crazy. Uh, I don't side with that. We also don't side with, of course, the lockdowns were the right thing to do. And of course, it was the Australian political processes that were responsible for saving the lives of, of thousands of Australians who would have otherwise died if Australia followed a more laissez-faire approach. So I'm kind of right in the middle, letting the data come in and uh, switching you know, with, with the data as it comes in. So initially, first, first two years, basically, of the pandemic, Australia had approximately 140th the per capita death rate of the United States, but uh, last nine months, the, the per capita death rate has been pretty even between Australia and the US. The point of voting for them, they're no different. So the question is, why did Republicans underperform last night? You're hearing a lot of people saying it was about abortion. Suburban ladies were mad about Roe. That's certainly plausible in some places, probably true. On the other hand, a number of resolutely pro-life Republicans thrived statewide. That would include Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, Brian Kemp in Georgia, Ted Budd in North Carolina, pro-lifers all. So abortion may have been a factor, but it's not the whole answer. Many others are saying that Donald Trump is the reason Republicans didn't do as well as they thought they would. That's a more complicated question. The truth is we can't really see the entire picture this early. <coughs> Excuse us. I mean, the truth is Trump has always been a mixed blessing politically. The downsides are marbled in with the upsides. But in this case, he's certainly not the single cause of anything. Republicans last night suffered a fair amount of down-ballot losses in races that had nothing to do with Trump. In Michigan, for example. So whether you like Trump or not, and many don't, and a lot do, it's a lot more complicated than just him. And then there's the most amusingly stupid explanation of all. <coughs> Excuse us. All election talk. So bad candidates were the problem. And that's all over Twitter. All the Twitter pundits are telling you now the candidates were subpar, and that was the problem. Candidate quality matters. Well, of course, strictly speaking, that is true. The quality of the candidate does matter, but at really how much does it matter? Well, let's see. Joe Biden got elected president two years ago from his basement. John Fetterman became a U.S. senator last night. Does anyone think John Fetterman was a quality candidate? <laughs> is that why he won? Because they had quality candidates on the left? Did the voters of Pennsylvania really want a brain-damaged candidate who's never had a real job? Did they think he was more impressive than the guy who spent his career doing heart transplants? Probably not. You've got to give him credit for at least knowing who they were voting for. And they voted for John Fetterman. He won anyway. What does that tell you? It tells you that in some cases, candidate quality is not actually the most important thing. What is? Well, the mechanics of an election. They matter. In fact, they matter sometimes more than any individual running in the election. The way people vote makes a big difference to the outcome. And so, by the way, there's access to channels of communication. Why does that matter? Well, because you can say whatever you want, but if no one hears you, you're not really speaking. And that's the case for Republicans. So often, as if tonight, Republicans can communicate their message unencumbered on a single cable television channel and a handful of relatively low-traffic websites. That's it. So this is Tucker Carlson from essentially 24 hours ago. The rest of the American media amounts to a gigantic filter designed to distort Republicans. They're saying it's a campaign apparatus, and only the Democrats have it. Now, you can whine about that. Oh, the media are liberal. But it's not about liberal or conservative. It's about winning elections, and Democrats can win because they have that. So if Republicans want to win elections, too, they might spend some money to fix that to achieve parity. So I don't think there's much evidence that because Democrats dominate the media, that's why Democrats win at the ballot box, right? Ronald Reagan was elected twice. Richard Nixon was elected twice. George W. Bush was elected twice. H.W. Bush, Donald Trump, right? Republicans have certainly won more than their fair share of elections, even though Democrats control the media. So to restate, as of tonight, Democrats have far more control of the election machinery and almost total control of the American media than Republicans. Okay, so I'm sure it does have some effect that the Democrats dominate the news media, and I'm sure it has some effect that Democrats essentially dominate every single institution 
with the exception of parts of business and parts of the military. So all the professions, doctors, lawyers, accountants, dentists, right? All the professions, social workers, these are all dominated by Democrats. Academia is dominated by Democrats. The tech world is dominated by the left. Hollywood, the entertainment industries, uh, finance, right? Every major institution in our country is dominated by the left. Republicans don't. These are not ideological problems. It's not a question of who's right on the issues. That's settled, certainly in our mind, but probably in the minds of even people who would vote Republican if it occurred to them, but it doesn't because they don't know what they stand for. These are questions, again, not of who's right or who's wrong, but of who makes it into elected office, of who wields power. And many on the right don't seem to understand this at all. They don't care about the details. Two and a half years ago, the last administration as Republican allies in Congress watched passively, seemingly in glassy-eyed sedation, as the Democratic Party used the pretext of COVID to rewrite election laws around the country in order to get its own candidates into office. They didn't do it by accident. They knew what they were doing. Last night, those laws, many of which are still in the books, paid off generously. John Fetterman bombed in his one public debate. You saw it. He humiliated himself. He made a mockery of the election. But it didn't matter by that point. All right. So, yeah, this is the best critique about the legitimacy of the 2020 election. So I don't believe there was voter fraud in the criminal sense. But yes, Democrats were more effective than Republicans at rewriting voter laws in favor of their interests. Right? And they used the pretext of COVID. So you'll notice that whatever's happening, whether it's climate change, global warming, COVID, stock market crash, Democrats, like everyone else, always wants to use a crisis in their advantage. And they always want to educate, right? Help educate people away from religion and folkways and prejudice. They always want to hector and badger and bully people. And because they occupy the high ground in culture, in all the professions, in all our institutions, they get to essentially set standards that, that have have a profound effect on how we speak. So we always have to speak in, in reaction to the standards that are set up by the left. Thanks to early voting, Fetterman's margin was already in the bank. Nearly 70% of Democrats had voted early in the Pennsylvania races. Only 20% of Republicans did. So, okay, it's over, but it doesn't need to be repeated. These are fixable problems. You can get your message out. You can force the other side, if you try hard enough, to agree on fair election rules. But you can't do any of that unless you acknowledge these problems exist. So those are probably the real problems. But enough of the depressing recap. There were bright spots last night. There were, as dispirited as you may have been. And we think it's important to enjoy them always. The good news is worth savoring. So the first piece of good news is actually the flip side of the worst piece of news, which is that John Fetterman won in Pennsylvania. And not only did John Fetterman win, but he won without speaking a single coherent sentence for the entire campaign. Now, you may have been appalled by that, but in some sense, it's an achievement. John Fetterman, in winning, shattered the thickest of all glass ceilings. Which Okay, so when you have an election, it's not necessarily people are voting for John Fetterman. It, it may well be that people are voting against the Republican, against Dr. Oz, against Donald Trump. So I, I think Donald Trump has, has frightened a lot of people in the center away from voting Republican. So here's a little bit from Richard Spencer's election night party as the results are just coming in. And that's, that's, I mean, I'm not even going to say that's fine. Because me and you aren't on the same team, if that's the position you're taking. Because clearly capitalism is exploitive. I mean, well, let's not get too edgy tonight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, clearly these people got rich by hurting other people, mainly white people in America. I mean, well, I think it's well, going to be interesting, yeah, the whole mental, uh, um, uh, mental, uh, these statistics. Okay, so I think this is an interesting discussion. What are the causes of homelessness? And so you've got this, this Fabrenta anti-capitalists here say it's American capitalism 
that's to blame for America's massive homelessness crisis. Insane asylums and things like that and think that this is just totally inhumane, but I actually don't. I, I think that what we've done is we... Yeah, maybe we need to give the homeless a little less freedom and start putting them in institutions to restore the quality of life for the rest of us. We've, got, we've freed people from these insane asylums to, to some extent due to the kind of deconstruction of notions of mental illness and so on. And we put them mm. out into underpasses. And I, I don't, I mean, you, you do have to offer, like, I, I you know, I, I agree that, like, you should solve the problem and just, you know, giving someone a ticket for handing a sandwich to a homeless guy, that, that seems uh, uh, pretty absurd. But, um, you know, there has to be some kind of solution. And I don't think liberals are kind of willing to go there. I, I, but in, mm-hmm. at least in my view, I, I do think that actually some kind of just um, institutionalization for a lot of people would actually be much more humane than what we have now. Well, I, I don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a, this is a, a this is a very difficult issue and it would require. So in Australia, there's less emphasis on personal freedom. So that's why many Americans will make disparaging remarks about Australians still living in in a prison because in Australia, they put more of an emphasis on fairness and there's a socially dominant view that it's not fair to have homeless. And if they're mentally ill, they need to be in institution. They're both parties and really intelligent, educated people. Uh, sitting down and figuring this out. But a lot of it is, uh, you know, white people don't want to see the effects of capitalism in their cities. Well, like tough shit, you know? Homeless are not here because of capitalism, right? They're overwhelmingly drug addicts, alcoholics, and the mentally ill. Like capitalism is not responsible for alcoholism, right? What's responsible for alcoholism and, and many of our other compulsions and addictions is basically evolutionary mismatch. We evolved... So that when we saw fat or you know something yummy to eat, we ate it, all right? Because we didn't know when we'd get our next source of food. When we could have, have a drink, a fermented drink, we drank it because we didn't know when we'd get alcohol next. So all sorts of things that were evolutionarily adaptive for thousands and thousands of years, now suddenly in the 20th and 21st century are no longer adaptive, thus we have this explosion with regard to compulsions and addictions. You created this issue, these rich white people and all these suburban whites that want their comfortable. Rich white people didn't create homelessness, but homelessness is overwhelmingly caused by drug addiction, alcoholism, mental illness. Life and, you know, a lot of people got fucked so they can live that life. And they kind of want to brush it underneath the, uh, or sweep it underneath the carpet or underneath the rug, whatever the uh, expression is. Well, I say tough shit. I think all these people can see, you know, the fruits of capitalism. You're implying that these homeless people or poor people are poor because of like other people. And I, I don't agree with like, you know, just totally unchecked wealth inequality. That's obviously a problem, but that's not like the way people get rich is, is not purely or even probably mostly through pure exploitation where it's, you know, zero sum and they're taking from people. And, and that's why they're rich people because they're okay. okay. I mean, like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to like hijack the conversation. Um, I was just making a point as to the Republican Party and their uh, their shit platform. It's not like let's rebuild America and help working class whites. It's let's take these homeless people and and uh, I don't know do whatever they want to do with them. Um, yeah, but no, I don't. I, I, see, I, don't, I, see I don't really need that. like the whole. Uh, you know, it seems like you're kind of taking the pro capitalist position. I'm not even sure who I'm speaking to, and that's that's. I mean, I'm not even going to say that's fine because me and you aren't on the same team. If that's the position you're taking. Because clearly capitalism is exploitive. So, yeah, it's exploitive. But so all human interactions have elements of exploitation. 
right? We're, we're evolutionarily designed to primarily think of our own welfare. If we didn't think of our own welfare primarily, we wouldn't have evolved to, to even be alive today. So what's normal, natural, and even healthy is to be about 90 to 95% selfish, right? If you can push the needle down to 90% instead of like the normal human average of about 95%, you're a mensch, you're, you're a sadic, you're a truly righteous man. So the existence of exploitation, meaning people looking out for themselves and having less concern for others than they do for themselves, this is normal, natural, and if appropriately channeled, it is even healthy. Well, let's not get too edgy tonight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, clearly these people got rich by hurting other people mainly white people in America. I mean, well, I think it's well, kind of yeah. interesting, yeah, the whole mental, uh, um, uh, mental uh, deinstitutionalization and such, because, uh, um, uh, I mean, because... So they also mentioned Steve Saylor a little later in the stream. Weird to say, but I, I almost like like Blake Masters more in the sense that he was, he was probably, like, he was probably like reading alternativeright.com 12 years ago or whatever. Better than Vance. Yeah, well, Vance was not. Vance was like, you know, going to a Ted Cruz convention and going to a Glenn Beck rally or something. What's really annoying about MAGA is how it's stabilized into this like permanent sector of the information economy when like Trump was already president president and didn't accomplish his goals. Like I turned on Fox News the other day and Stephen Miller is complaining about what's now the Brandon border when like Trump was already Trump was president. Like, is this just going to go on forever, regardless of whether Trump is to win or lose? Yes. I mean, during 2020, <laughs> they were showing images of riots and saying this is Joe Biden's America. It's like they're never in charge. It's a weird psychological thing. That's hilarious because then when Biden actually became president, all those rights uh, stopped. <laughs> um, we just can't find it. Yeah, and apparently they, uh, they've been reading Steve Saylor in the White House because they, they stopped uh, taking BLM's calls. Like They knew that this was driving crime up, especially murder. Um, but I don't know. Almost to be fair, I mean, if you go back to 2020 and Trump was talking big you know, there, there are these calls that were leaked and things like that. And he was like, you've got to be ruthless. You've got to be tough. You know, you get, you know, it's almost like he wanted his, his gut instinct was to suppress the riot. And I would say that, you know, to the degree that he did that, um, I mean, to the degree that he took a photo op in front of a church holding a Bible or whatever before tear gassing people, I, he did get a lot of shit for that. And if he had gone full, you know, call in the National Guard and like federalize the issue, that might very well have blown up in his face. Or the people uh, in, the in the media and so on. But I, I would have totally supported that. Yes, I know. The five percenters. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, that whole era was just totally ridiculous on so many levels. It was just, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think we've even fully like understood how important that stuff was. But the allowing the, you know, again, I don't think, I think conservatives will overstate things and say cities were burning or whatever. But look, it, it actually was a situation of chaos in many areas. And it, it was temporary and it was localized, but it, it was actually very bad. You know, I mean, there were just images of people ransacking shopping malls in Dallas, Texas and things like that. I mean, it, it was it was bad. And it wasn't just the immediate aftermath of the George Floyd event and the riots that uh, disrupted the country. We had this massive explosion in murder rates after that, right? Murder rates have gone up in America about 30% since then. Driving deaths, pedestrian deaths, all sorts of deaths as a result of exuberance. We had this massive increase in death as a result of our ruling elites, particularly the media, now ruling political elites, started criticizing the police 
providing incentives for the police to back off from doing their job. As a result, we get much more bad behavior and thousands and thousands of people are dead and the quality of life in the United States has just been absolutely trashed. It's not the first five days after George Floyd's death that is most important. It's the thousands of deaths since then and the dramatically diminished quality of life for tens of millions of Americans. And, you know, the state kind of can't, like the conservatives can't do anything against that outside of call it Joe Biden's America and talk about it on social media. <sighs> or, you know, praise Rittenhouse or whatever. I mean, it's just... Uh, people always oh, talk yeah. about how people always talk about how crazy 2016 was, but I think 2020 was pretty crazy as well. Well, that's one. Yeah, 2020 was crazy. So there's a new documentary that is out. The trailer is out and I'm in it. So let's play a little bit from this trailer. What does a violent porn director, a child golf star, and a congressman have in common? You're about to find out. I lost a, a part of myself that day. I had no clue I was going to be battered. Close-handed fist. This is the only time I've ever been punched by a grown man. This is a Reagan star, ex-performer. He was going by the name. This is who we're talking about, uh, Contusion. That's a photo of him with Reagan star. Contusion. Who is Contusion? He is the boogeyman of porn. On screen, you see a faceless figure attacking women. Contusion, that means something. That's, you know, someone who's leaving a a bruise. And he seemed to... I can't believe how... (laughs) Who is that that scary dude? Wow. Wow. to deeply bruise a lot of people. You see hands choking and beating. You want me to let go? Shapely? Okay. You see his spit on his victim's faces. You see his filthy sneakers marking his flesh. You never see his face. No one knows who he is or where he comes from. Some say he's a rich real estate mogul and that his famous brother has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So his brother is Mark Handel post-morning radio show on KFI, a major radio station in Los Angeles for a decade. His dad was a bona fide Nazi hunter. True. The contusion, Bill Handel, Mark Handel, their father was a Nazi And made propaganda films. Don't talk too much or too loud. The subject matter is illegal abortion. What is the truth? One thing is for sure, he is the most vicious and hated porn director the adult film industry has ever seen. He gets off abusing and debasing women. He was known in the industry as being particularly gifted at breaking women down so that they would just die on camera. (laughs) There's definitely a consent issue here. Nobody told me I was going to go to a porn set and I'm going to be spit on had. So even when people consent to the horrible things that you're doing to them, if you're giving them 
unnecessary damaging quantities of drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever, food. Like I, I noticed a lot of people push food on you and many people, maybe most people have trouble with food. So you're, you're harming people when you push things on them that are not good for them. So even if they consent, if you're participating in the harming of someone else, that's not good karma. It's not good for your soul. It's not a, not a good thing to do. So consent is one thing, but it's not everything here. Somebody's foot put on my vagina, and I'm going to have to think about the things that this douchebag said to me for the rest of my life. So that's uh, Tarrant Thomas, and uh, nobody should have somebody's foot placed on their vagina. I, I almost fucking died! Yeah, but you wanted absolution? Did you want absolution for being a whore? Look, Mom! Look, Dad! Do your family know about what you're doing? Yeah, I'm sure they do. How do they feel about that? I don't give them all the details. I mean, I don't say, yeah, I climb up on the roof, you know, and I, and I choke a girl to unconsciousness. There was the famous Ashley Blue scene where she's getting choked, turned blue, passed out. <laughs> Woke up and was crying. She didn't know what happened. And he's amassed fans all over the world. I believe that Khan is a great artist. The scene when the guy farts in, in the girl's mouth. Oh, you fucking asshole! That was his artwork like Michelangelo. The last thing he wants is for anyone to find out. His voice was altered in post-production. There was a strict order. Whoever shot camera that day, like, Khan is off limits. Why wouldn't you let us film you so we can see who you are? I have a different uh, life and frankly I don't want to mix the two. You're, you're lucky He's you got this far. a pillar of our community. I am indeed a pillar of the community. What happened, Angel? A lot of people in the industry thought he was bad for the business. If someone just told the New York Times or the FBI or the Justice Department about what was going on, there would be an investigation. When you have these anti-porn crusaders coming out, that's what they're using to destroy our industry. Contusion presented a tremendous threat to the well-being or even the existence of the porn industry. Okay, so what was a contusion? Did he have powerful friends? Never faced any charges. So there's some evidence that he said he'd never be prosecuted because he had powerful friends in law enforcement and with the police. So he assisted the FBI with investigating child pornography. We got an anonymous tip. We were told that it would be in our interest to request access to court files. According to the court files, the name Contusion is an alias for Mark Handel, who is a local developer. He has been involved with financing Tony Cardenas. It was an open secret in the industry that Contusion was Mark Handel, a rich and successful real estate developer. He had both a wife and kids and a position in polite society. He was the brother of Bill Handel, a KFI morning radio show host. I want a real American up there representing the United States. None of this Nancy Kwan Chinese stuff. I don't want to see eyes that are like all slanted and oriental and almond shaped. And yet at the same time, he could make the most incendiary, shocking, degrading, urging on illegal.
So in 1994-95, when I was new in LA, I did a lot of extra work. And one of the jobs I worked was an extra on a pilot TV show for Bill Handel, Mark Handel's brother. Mark Handel's the subject of this pariah documentary. And after we were finished shooting, I went up and introduced myself to Bill and told him I was a convert to Judaism. Somehow that came up. He said, oh, you didn't go crazy and start keeping kosher on the Sabbath, did you? And I said, yes. I went crazy and I started keeping kosher in the Sabbath. So Justin Levine, who's been on this show many times, used to work as a producer for Bill Handel. Pornography. Is that what you want? You want to get me so angry? Is that, I want to know. Is that it? Hanjujin's been trying to hide his identity for over 20 years. Now I think you guys should all know exactly what he looks like. And if this guy on the right is your neighbor, this is the guy who abused hundreds if not thousands of women in LA. And uh, next time I have to talk about it, we'll probably be in a courtroom. Pariah is a documentary that tells a stranger than fiction story from the warehouses of Porn Valley to the halls of political power. A congressman accused of abusing a child. Angela was a golf star. She was well on her way to really make it in the game. And the violent porn director who helped him finance it. Ms. Doe's residence was a small trailer home where she lived with her parents. Mr. Cardenas offered to provide a large four-bedroom home. Mr. Cardenas had directed Mark Handel, a leading San Fernando Valley real estate developer, to pay for all of the Villela's family living expenses. Mr. Handel was allegedly also known as Contusion. much work into keeping this under wraps. Contusion and Tony Cardenas, they're hiding behind their power. So this uh, trailer is on YouTube. If you want to watch the whole thing, it's a documentary in process. Okay, I was just listening to an interesting story from New York Magazine, which just seems to embody so much of, of our contemporary elite. So. How to live in a catastrophe in search of a way to think clearly about the planetary crisis. Written by Elizabeth Weil for New York Magazine. Narrated by Joy Osmansky. Please be advised, this article contains adult language. So, do you think much about how to live in, a, in an environmental crisis? I mean, is, are you losing sleep over global warming? Hello. Excuse me. Are you lost? Not in physical space or in your personal life. Just kind of cosmically unmoored? It seems like we're in a catastrophe. I mean, obviously, we're in a catastrophe. Our clown car democracy, our warm embrace of surveillance capitalism. Dobbs. Just days ago, Elon Musk bought Twitter, and the fascists openly rejoiced. So, you probably think that we're living in a catastrophe, but not for the reasons that this climate writer for New York Magazine elucidates. 
Six months ago, a teenager killed 19 kids and two teachers in Uvalde, Texas, while hundreds of law enforcement officers stood around. Plus, the big granddaddy catastrophe of them all, the planetary crisis. The planetary crisis. What a term. Your life is still stable enough that you're reading magazine articles. You've got that huge lucky fact going for you. But even so, how could a person possibly stay sane and oriented? How could a person think straight and well in a moment such as this? You try. You So a moment such as this, that's that's what gets me. And I think if we're honest, there's something about women and something about people on the left that love living in a crisis because a crisis is an opportunity to take charge. So I heard Alison Armstrong, who does a lot of dating seminars, make the point that women loved COVID because it was very dramatic. It was very emotionally exciting and it played to their strengths. So about the one area of life where consistently women are far better informed than men is with regard to health. And so women just became very interested, driven, excited about COVID. This living in a catastrophe, it just seems to appeal to something in female nature, the the need for for drama. And there is also something in in liberal leftism that, that needs drama and needs constant opportunities to educate, hector, bully, the rest of us. There always has to be a cause. So the people on the right, the greatest dangers are disorder and contagion. The people on the left, the biggest danger is ignorance and and bigotry, right? So for the right, biggest dangers, disorder, contagion. People on the left, biggest dangers are ignorance and bigotry. And so people on the left, they see people on the right as being insufficiently woke with regard to climate change, that uh, people on the right are not following the science, that they're not alive to this, this moment of emergency that we're in. And this whole article and the, the kind of hectoring tone just seems to be like the quintessence of you know, female leftism in, in particular, like how to live in a catastrophe. So we, we feel ourselves increasingly constrained by this progressive left-wing ruling class. This is Joel Cochran writing in 2014. And our ruling class accepts essentially no dissent from its basic tenets. If you dissent from any of the basic tenets of the ruling class, you'll get banned from YouTube. So I have to constantly compromise and use euphemisms to try to get my points across because the ruling class decides what we get to say on social media. So the ruling class constrains dissenting views, whether it's on politics, on social attitudes, culture, science, right? And the ruling class dominates because they dominate the media, they dominate entertainment, they dominate the academy, they dominate all the professions, and they dominate the government bureaucracy. So their power does not stem primarily from money, but they occupy the high ground in the culture wars, right? They occupy and dominate the leading cultural institutions, such as the New Yorker, New York Magazine, New York Times, the most elite universities, such as Harvard and Yale. So they get to dominate in the persuasion, instruction, regulation, and bullying game, right? They increasingly promote this 
parochial left-wing ideology, and they exercise their power to marginalize, excommunicate those who don't abide, but they refuse to acknowledge that they have a partisan ideology. From their perspective, they are simply pursuing what is true and good and what is objectively right. So there's no official formal membership list to, to our ruling class, but we all know the left dominate every single major institution in this country with the possible exception of parts of business and, and the military. So they have taken over the judiciary, academia, public schools, large foundations, like nonprofits, the media, entertainment, right? And they pursue a mission to bully, to educate, soft totalitarianism, to marginalize and to excommunicate those of us who differ from their left-wing worldview. So we have this new ruling orthodoxy. And they will badge it, they will scold, and they will bully all who defy it. And the best explanation for what's going on comes from Ronnie Gulman's book, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, The Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. And I just poured a few key quotes from this book out right now for this show. So officially, people on the left are egalitarian, but they believe in their heart of hearts that they are simply superior beings, that they are better at self-regulating, they are more transparent, that they have attained a higher form of human agency. They understand themselves as pursuing a buffered, strategic, autonomous, you know, rational existence. And conservatives who are simply bitter losers, bitter clingers on, are lost in some hallucination of imaginary cultural villains. So from a modern perspective, people on the right are just varying degrees of medieval. Some are more medieval, right? Those who, who believe that demons are running wild and loose in the world, right? That's more medieval than, than someone who doesn't believe in demons. But everyone who does not abide by the modern secular left liberal perspective is to varying degrees traditional and medieval. So liberals will deny that they're intolerant or that they bully. Right? They, they simply take their worldview for granted because they don't have to justify it because they control the means of cultural production. So they present themselves as pragmatic, as therapeutic, as possessing common sense, right? They're just afraid of mass shootings. That's why they want to restrict gun ownership. But underneath this veneer of being objective and pragmatic, right? The left promotes an, an ethos that those of us on the right have to constantly confront on an intuitive and visceral level that defies easy calculation and it's, it's got to be admitted that people on the left have seized the rhetorical high ground. And we always find ourselves, those of us on the right, having to you know, play on an uneven rhetorical playing field. So when you just make the moral arguments, right, the left has a much easier time making the moral argument for gay marriage than do people on the right for making the case against gay marriage. So people on the right compared to people on the left are inarticulate. And this is what allows people on the left to remain ignorant of the deeper truths of our grievances, right? Which people on the right struggle to convey. So you have a lot of conservative polemics on Tucker Carlson's show, on Fox News, many people on the right against political correctness and 
frequently these polemics rest on exaggeration and distortion, but it's a frequently a vulgar and clumsy attempt to encapsulate the exceedingly subtle forms of illiberalism that are at play within liberalism. Right? We we on the right have, have lacked an adequate vocabulary to go to war with the left that dominates our societies. So conservatives feel at a perennial rhetorical disadvantage. So like the WASP elites of old, today's liberals are not content that the lower orders of society be left as they are, right? But uh, those who are below them must be constantly badgered, bullied, pushed, preached at, drilled, educated, organized to abandon their lax and disordered folk ways, their clinging to guns and religion, right? And conform to these new features of civil behavior, such as embracing transsexuality and, and gay marriage. So people on the right experience themselves as standing up to this tyranny, to this badgering, to this bullying, right? And so people on the right don't, don't see liberals as simply making an argument. They, they see liberals as essentially imperialists who are trying to impose their supposedly objective worldview on the rest of us. So Michel Foucault was a French deconstructionist thinker of the left, but much of his rhetoric is applicable here. And he talked about the insurrection of subjugated knowledge. So what, what are forms of knowledge that you're not allowed to talk about in polite society, such as racial differences, group differences, religious differences statistically in behavior, right? We have all sorts of knowledge that is located like low down on the social hierarchy. And often the knowledge that drives us is is below our level of cognition and we don't necessarily have the scientific studies to back it up. But to be on the right means that you generally speaking expect that traditional ways of organizing families and societies and communities are better than untested newfangled ways such as same-sex marriage and the transsexual phenomenon. So let me just take a quick break. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was a and, crazy time. Yeah. And, and also that it was like openly racist towards Chinese people and blaming them with COVID and whatever. And this is uh, like completely bizarre. Yes. And just obviously spreading COVID. I mean, I, I do, I, I, now I guess I'm sounding like a conservative. I, I do think it demonstrated some important aspect of like the decline of the state. Because there is something, you know, look, that the, whole, the early BLM riots were not violent. And overall, they were fiery, but mostly peaceful. Like that, that is actually an accurate statement. To that. But, you know, the early ones were just total silliness. And the way in which uh, like a police officer kneeling, like there is just something like fundamentally delegitimizing or like sacrilegious about that. Like that, that is on a symbolic level. The state is almost no longer sovereign at that point. I mean, that, that actually is really profound, I think. Um, and then obviously there's just a whole bunch of silliness of, you know, white people living in Arlington, Virginia, waving their hands in the air. So, I mean, it was just totally silly. And then it just kept getting worse and worse to the point that you really had like lawlessness and violence. And the degree to which like Seattle wasn't willing to crack down at least for two weeks or however long it was, is also significant. Like I, I you know, it's not just that we, we weren't quite in a revolutionary situation, but I do think it gave like a glimpse of the problems with the state. And those problems actually are real. 
And conservative, like the conservative response to it as well was kind of significant in the sense that it was, you know, getting really, and we were all locked in our houses more or less at that point as well. And it was like obsessing about stuff on social media and, you know, calling it Biden's America when Trump's in charge and, and kind of like wanting Trump to act, but then not really making him pay for it. Like actually he could benefit from it. It was a really complex situation, but I do think it gave us a glimpse of, you know, serious issues with the government of just a, a kind of decline in sovereignty and a, a population that's generally out of control. The whole Shaz thing is also very wild. We almost saw like a Christiania situation in Seattle. Yes. Um, uh, very- so the question, what skincare products do I use? I don't use any. I went out and bought some sunscreen the other day, right? I'm in Australia, so I've got this uh, moisturizing sunscreen with aloe vera and vitamin E. So I just bought that and I've been slapping that on. And then I use nasal wash twice a day that uh, keeps my nasal passages nice and clear. Also swimming in the ocean is great for that. Then I also like fluticasone propionate. It uh, helps reduce like nasal congestion, allergies, crap like that. So there are my products. Why is it my business if someone gay wants to get married? They've been married and gay before gay marriage was legal. Okay, so this comes down to the fundamental left-right distinction. The left-wing perspective on human identity is that we we are buffered, so that what you're doing doesn't necessarily need to affect me, right? From a traditional perspective, if you're engaged in disgusting behavior, heinous behavior, abominable behavior, that does affect me. If you're in my life, if you live on my street, right? The the traditional conception of the self is that we're porous, that what's going on outside my window, that affects me. That uh, if you're in my chat, right? And you could be in Bulgaria for all I know. What's going on with you has some effect on me. So the left-wing view is that we're buffered, right? That we're we're strategic, autonomous, rational individuals who who are buffered and that what other people do doesn't doesn't affect us, doesn't have to affect us. The traditional right-wing perspective is that we are porous, that we're being constantly affected by the moral currents, the the behavior of, of people around us. The left-wing perspective is that people are basically good, and so we simply need to create a society that uh, encourages and subsidizes human flourishing. Every right-wing perspective has a skeptical view of human nature that people are naturally inclined towards a lot of bad things, and so we need to build up a society that keeps people in check. So that's why people on the right have the greatest fears are disorder and contagion. Well, people on the left, everyone on the left who has any sort of philosophical understanding of life holds that people are basically good and that what ruins people is that they get educated in bigotry and ignorance and stupid folk ways. And so our most important mission is to educate people out of their bigotry and ignorance. So that's why people on the left are always on a mission to educate, just like uh, this this climate reporter here how, talking about how to live you in a catastrophe. Really do. You're an A minus person, maybe B plus. You sweat out the record high temperatures this summer in Shanghai or London or Anaheim or Salt Lake City or Sacramento. You watch CNN correspondent Clarissa Ward reporting from the floods that cover one third of Pakistan. There she is in her pink tunic, blonde hair pulled back, getting bumped by oxen, interviewing dazed, desperate families streaming down the road to get to higher ground, 
visibly baffled by her own journalistic relationship to non-interference. And you see she's doing her best, too, working with what she's got. What is so? So always wanting to educate, always wanting to instruct. That's the, that's the fundamental left-wing orientation. So here's another example of it. PBS Frontline, The Power of Big Oil. Big oil, all right? It's these outside business institutions. years, oil and gas has played a critical role in our society, improving human lives, raising standards of living, and enabling unprecedented economic growth. What do you do when your industry can no longer exist without creating catastrophes worldwide? The impacts of climate change are intensifying. Right, there are so many variables with regard to climate change that we just don't know very much. But people on the left will be absolutely bereft if they don't have a cause to hector or bully people and instruct them and take control of their lives and move them away from autonomy and move them towards conformity. So get people out of cars and onto public transport. The left always has to have a cause, cause to educate you, bully you, to hector you, to force you to conform understand the past. You can't understand where you are if you don't know how you got there. In a special three-part series, the epic story of our failure to tackle climate change. The whole world is heating up. And the role of the fossil fuel industry. The climate will keep changing, no matter what we do. One thing we do know is that green energy has makes, makes a negligible contribution to our energy needs and there's absolutely no reason to believe that that's going to change in the next two decades so you cry fossil fuels all you want we need fossil fuels to eat and to live and to sustain our civilization oil knowingly spread disinformation now in the third and final part big oil so knowingly spread disinformation meaning you you are sharing things on social media that uh, the left does not approve, right? Left wants to educate you, bro. It wants to educate you out of your your traditional folk ways. You're clinging to your guns and your religion and your car. Why haven't you gotten on public transport? So you'll notice when people on the left question people on the right, they'll always pose as just asking some sort of innocent request for clarification. But there's always underneath it, you know, these these undertones of a direct assault. Oh man, I need to get that. So here, listen to this. I visited Christianity. I don't know if I talked about that. Oh, maybe that's why I, I, <laughs> I wanted. I was just like, I was so anxious. I wanted to just get a Gatling gun out and just shoot every single person in that horrible place. That was my response. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. <laughs> I was right. <laughs> What was the like, job? Some kind of commune, or <laughs> yes, it's doing a Patrick Bateman. <laughs> well, no, not not quite like Patrick Bateman. It, it, you know, it, it's an actual commune. Um, oh God, where was I? Uh, where is that again? I, it's in Copenhagen. Copenhagen? Yeah, Copenhagen. yeah, I mean, yeah. Actually, I, I traveled to a couple of different cities. This is yeah. almost ten years ago now. Um, but yeah, it's a it's interestingly named Christiania, so it has this Christian quality to it. And no, and, it's, it's actually named after Oslo, used to be called Christiania, so it has nothing to do with Christianity. So they well, it has a lot to do with Christianity, even if it's an accidental connection. Uh, yeah, I mean, because Danish kings are called Christians, Christian, so, but, yeah. yeah so. It's suitably named, and it, it is this Dionysian, you know, commune, and there are, I mean, it, it's not violent, I mean, there, there are no 
um, at least what I saw. But and there's a lot of like trading going on. There's obviously a lot of cannabis, but it's a it kind of city within a city and no one tears it down. And um, but it is it is very weird. I just felt this like weird like vibe of irrationality when I was in there. I just I, I really hated it profoundly. Um, <clears throat> That's how I feel about Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it used to be this, uh, in the 70s, it used to be some military barracks or something, uh, which were abandoned. Uh, if I recall correctly, then it was occupied by some hippies, and they created like, a commune after that. Um, so has it been going on for like 40 years? Yeah, consistently. Oh. Um, and uh, I, mean, I think about 10 years ago, um, they had some agreement with uh, uh, the Danish government that they were supposed to pay taxes. Okay, I'm back. Sorry about that. So this, this uh, climate change documentary just seems so typical of, of left-wing hatchery. Pivots to a new energy source. Renewables weren't quite there yet. Natural gas could provide... Renewables weren't quite there yet? Renewables haven't... Still aren't here. It's absolutely no prospect for renewables taking up a significantly larger portion of our energy needs. We have absolutely no prospect of that. Absolutely no signs that this is going to happen in the next two decades continuous 24-hour generation. Doing something for the first time, taking advantage of this new resource, you don't always know what you don't know. And over time, what we learned is very, very scary. And the challenges that have delayed climate action. We have a supply of natural gas that can last America nearly 100 years. The United States is now the number one producer of oil and natural gas. The energy crisis exacerbated by Russia's war. To released 60 million barrels of oil from reserves around the world. We all want a clean climate, but what we want more than that is to be able to fill up our cars below $4 a gallon. We're still very much in the fossil fuel age. We continue to maintain a position that has evolved with science and is today consistent with the science. We won't solve. Climate change is incredibly complicated. There is no scientific consensus on many you know, parts of what's called you know, climate change and and fossil fuels, right? You have all sorts of different individuals with different individual specialties, but if you have an individual specialty within the climate range field, that means that there are untold numbers of essential specialties in the climate change field that you are not an expert in, that no one's expert in all the different fields that make up climate change. Right? You cannot be an expert in climate change. You can only be an expert in one little part of climate change. The climate crisis, unless we solve the misinformation crisis. And the misinformation crisis is they, they want to you know, crack down on the type of conversations that we can have. So there's this constant hectoring, bullying, trying to educate you out of your ignorance tone to, to liberals. You watch CNN correspondent Clarissa Ward reporting from the floods that cover one-third of Pakistan. There she is, in her pink tunic, blonde hair pulled back, getting bumped by oxen, interviewing dazed, desperate families streaming down the road to get to higher ground, visibly baffled by her own journalistic relationship to non-interference. And you see she's doing her best, too, working with what she's got. What is so pronounced here? Okay, some election news. Lauren Bobert is now leading challenger Adam Fresh by 1,229 votes with 98% reporting. And it was a red wave for white voters, says Ramsey Paul. 
So whites voted 58% for Republicans, 40% for Democrats. Blacks voted for Democrats, 86 to 13. So black, whites were 73% of the electorate. Blacks were 11%. Latinos were 11%. Latinos voted 60% for Democrats this time around, 39% for Republicans. I think 40% is really pretty close to the top of what Republicans can expect to get from the Latino vote overall. Asians, 2% of the electorate voted 58% for Democrats, 40% for Republicans. So whites, 73% of the electorate voted 58% Republican, 40% Democrat. Non-whites voted 68% for the Democrats, 30% for Republicans. John is you don't see any aid workers, she says to her anchor back in his air-conditioned tower in New York. It's interesting when you talk to people. There's a lot of resentment, too, and they're asking for reparations, money. The term of art for that money is loss and damage. When the UN convenes in September for Climate Week, week, your brain keeps tripping on that awful poetic phrase, loss and damage. We live in an era of loss and damage. We need to address the concept of loss and damage. Yes, yes. We need to address. I mean, isn't that one of the quintessential liberal left phrases? We need to address. We need to have a conversation. Right? We need to talk. We need to have a national dialogue. We all need to come together. Right? It's it's just such a classic liberal left language, and it always has a liberal left agenda. So Tudor Dixon ran a great campaign. She did not win in Michigan. She says, truth is, the Republican establishment fought against me every step of the way, put the entire ticket at risk. We need fresh leadership in the Michigan GOP. And... uh, a heavily Republican vote is still being held back in Arizona, expected to drop tomorrow. So it's not out of the question that Blake Bassers could still win U.S. Senate from Arizona. And uh, Kerry Lake still looks likely to win the governorship in Arizona. So People's Pundit Rich Barris says, everyone should understand Arizona is not going to report any GOP favored batches from Maricopa or Pima County tonight. They're only dropping the remaining Democratic favored batches. Tomorrow is a holiday. They say they will count. All right, let's get some more hectoring here. Power of big oil, right? Big oil is, is one of those rare institutions that is not controlled by the left. Now it's a threat. Hey guys, nice night, huh? There's this great irony of the Obama administration. He comes in promising to be the climate president. He's going to address these issues. And at the same time, we're in the middle of a recession. And one of the few rays of job growth is in oil and gas. Nowhere 
is the promise of innovation greater than in American-made energy? The country down on its heels, and here comes the oil industry, generating lots of oil, generating tax revenue. It was a great story for the oil industry to sell. Over the last three years, we've opened millions of new acres for oil and gas exploration. The potential for natural gas was huge. We have a supply of natural gas that can last America nearly 100 years. When Obama said we had 100 years. So, yeah, compared to most other nations, we're in far better shape with regard to meeting our energy needs. That's not really thanks to the Democrats. So why is it that the people on the left are always trying to educate us, hector us, and bully us? All right, so... The left employs this facade of rationalism that it's running Goldman, right, to reinforce a subtle social hierarchy. They, they can drown conservatives in an ever-expanding accretion of insinuations. Oh, are you racist, bro? Are you a science denier? Are you a climate denier? Are you a COVID denier? Are you an election denier, bro? Right? This just this flood of insinuations and intimations, if not explicitly you know, calling you a total antisocial jerk, right? People on the right have to battle through this Kafkaesque world, you know, each layer of which is recognizable only by reference to the left. So conservatives have a difficult time exposing the bigotry of liberals, even though they are absolutely submerged in this bigotry. So the cumulative result of all this liberal subterfuge, double talk, mystification, is that ultra-liberalism is not now regarded simply as a superior public philosophy, but it is somehow perceived as post-ideological and pragmatic and objective, just following the science, bro. So on the left, always hectoring, bullying, trying to educate us. that We cannot be left as we are. We have to be badgered. We have to be bullied. We have to be pushed. We have to be preached at. We have to be drilled and organized to abandon our guns and our religion, our disorganized traditions and folkways. So this bullying and badgering usually takes place through well-meaning solicitude of the family doctor because the left controls all our institutions. It doesn't come from the village priest or the policeman as much anymore. But this is all part of a civilizing process to make us modern and to believe in a buffered self, autonomous, strategic self that can you know, rationally make sense of the world and act from a conservative perspective, people are not basically good, but uh, reason frequently misleads us, and traditional ways usually tend to be more effective ways of organizing families and communities than newfangled ways that haven't tried before. So left-wing bullying and badgering can be subtle, it can be indirect, it can be undertaken within the constraints of democratic norms, but the cumulative impact right, you know, threatens to transform our understanding of who we are. Just can't seem to get away from it. I wonder what more angry has to say. Um, and it's I'm actually, right? I'm using a soundbite from your show. Oh, cool. In my show. 
Isn't that exciting? Is that funny how we can turn just, things around? Isn't that well, neat? I've, done, I've used interviews from your show on my show because I'm we're gonna one do Nancy big happy family here. I'm gonna I'm gonna do Pelosi's clap to you. Okay, nice job. Nice. Hang on, if All you're right. gonna do the clap, I'm gonna do the. Uh, let me rip up the, the speech. The tear right? up the speech. All right, they're yelling at me. Sam's yelling right. at me. I gotta Have go. Fun. All right, see ya. I'm Laura Ingram. This is Ingram Angle with a Fox News alert from Washington tonight. As you heard, a federal judge just struck down President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. Trump appointed Judge Mark Pittman ruled that the program is an unconstitutional exercise of Congress's legislative power. Oh, yes, it is. But come on. I imagine the Biden doesn't care. The election's over. And the free money goosed the youth vote enough to make a difference, perhaps. It's a complete disgrace. And speaking of abominations, the endless vote count. That's the focus of tonight's angle. All right, now, 45 hours or so after the last polls in America closed, and there are still 36 races, 33 in the House and three in the Senate that still haven't been called, <laughs> except in the case of automatic recounts, which are triggered by razor-thin margins. This is ridiculous. And these obscene delays are having real-world implications. Now, we still don't know for certain which party controls either chamber. Now, the House will almost certainly go to the GOP, but the Senate hangs in the balance. So whichever party wins two of the three remaining states, Georgia, Nevada, or Arizona, will control the Senate. And we have no outcome yet in any of those. Now, in Georgia, they're excused, I guess, because neither Herschel Walker nor Raphael Warnock received over 50% of the vote, triggering an automatic runoff. But what we're seeing in Arizona, what we're seeing in Nevada, is unconscionable. There are 665,000 more votes that need to be counted. 120,000 votes still need to be counted in Nevada. But there were 300 boxes throughout this county, and that's what's being counted right now. We just got that update from the Clark County Registrar that they have more than 50,000 ballots that need to be counted. Now, somehow, we were able to become the most powerful nation on the face of the planet by voting and calling important races in one day. And in recent history, we elected two Democrats, each to two terms, Obama and Bill Clinton twice, okay, under a system where we knew the winner on election night. Was fair enough then, correct? But now we're seeing a new normal of elections unfold every few years, where in a number of battleground states, outcomes are simply not determined for days and maybe even weeks after election day. So for the entire election season, remember the White House was issuing all these stern warnings about the dire threats to our elections, presumably, of course, just from nefarious mega-maga forces. Think of all we heard before this election about all the people being intimidated, all the people being threatened at the polls, all the people who worked the polls. It was the first national election since January 6th, and there were a lot of concerns about whether democracy would meet the test. It did. It did. It did. It's amazing how the Democrats outperforming in the election stopped all that voter suppression. Now, the fact is they never believed any of their election hyperbole. It was just another cynical election ploy to help rally their base. We saw extraordinary results in these midterms elections that no one thought possible. We got a result and we accepted it. Everybody accepted. Well, first of all, the results are obviously not all in, Joe, like he's not all there. And instead, we have random announcements throughout the day 
which few Americans can even follow or understand, like what we're seeing out of Maricopa County, where they still have a staggering 400,000 votes to count. When do you anticipate the votes will be counted in total, those 400,000 plus votes? Well, we have... uh we will be going into next week. There's some onesie twosies, uh, again, pursuant to Arizona law. But I think that we'll see the lion's share here wrap up by early next week. Okay. Early next week. Can you give me a day? Are we early, talking Monday? Or we- may, may, maybe I, as long as you won't hold it to hold me to it. But I think that's what we're looking at this point. Oh, why, why should we hold anyone to anything? Why rush? Nothing not important about this. And, and you know, The defenders of democracy, you really have to worry about them because they're working very long hours. To those people who are demanding that we work, that that we move faster with the count, they are already working 14 to 18 hours a day. We can't go any further than that. We can't go any faster. Now, If democracy is really on the line, like Biden said before they thought they outperformed, why didn't they have the infrastructure in place to handle this? Hmm. And they were getting very snippy today, I noticed, at their press conference. Why is it taking the amount of time it's taking? I'm here to tell you the goalposts have changed. All right. And the reason that the goalposts have changed is because wonderful news. We had 290,000 Mail-in ballots dropped off at our vote centers on Election Day. That broke the previous record by 70%. Why didn't you have the staff in place? And you think Republican Governor Ducey would have fixed this mess? Same-day mail-in drop-off voting sounds nifty, but not if you can't count the votes. Again, not rocket science. Now, I realize that they have to follow these idiotic rules that Arizona has in place, But this screwed up system is so corrosive, it it just chips away at the public's confidence in in inaccurate uh, outcomes, right? They want accurate outcomes, but don't think they're getting them. But of course, pretty much everyone in the press will brand any objection raised by any Republican about almost any aspect of voting as wacky, election denier, conspiracy theory stuff. Well, I say too bad. There are legitimate reasons for Americans of both parties. Okay, here's an important video that we need to dissect. Relax, 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 relax,
Okay, so much to so much to break down, so much to try to understand there. But let's get back to topic number one, like liberal bullying and hectoring. So people on the left, they, they want to moralize all social activity, but never present it as just raw, unabashed moralism. Instead, it's always just a specific response to a specific problem, which you know a few people deny is real. So a liberal left elites have these reforming, bullying, hectoring impulses that express themselves in very scientifically sophisticated fashion. And they're always trying to make us more scientifically sophisticated. So badgering, bullying, and drilling assumes generally a circuitous and genteel form. It's advanced as just focused correctives rather than in the name of discipline. But this focused corrective lie right, just hides liberalism silent hidden curriculum, which is to mold people in a manner that helps ensure the type of world that, that they want. So conservatives have this inexorable conviction that people on the left cannot be taken at face value because what the left holds out as a transcendence of all ideologies, just being pragmatic and objective, really is just another form of moralistic authoritarianism in disguise. So environmentalism in particular grants license to just an unbelievable level of bullying, of moral bullying, that would be denounced as totalitarian if it was motivated simply by traditional values. So let's get more of the lady climate writer here. The term of art for that money is loss and damage. When the UN convenes in September for Climate Week, week, huh, your brain keeps tripping on that awful poetic phrase, loss and damage. We live in an era of loss and damage. We need to address the concept of loss and damage. Yes, yes, but how? Our brains, they're good, but they're not great. In their default setting, they're unable to hold what's going on. You know the basic menu of options for individual action. A sampler in ascending order. Bike. Vote. Buy a heat pump. Organize. Stop flying. Go full 70s hippie and live in a yurt. Go back to school. Earn a law degree. Work to put ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods and or Chevron CEO Michael Wirth in a dock at The Hague, which may be underwater by the time you succeed. Set yourself on fire on Earth Day on the Supreme Court steps. All right, so just all this hysteria... All, all this hectoring, all, all this bullying, you know, what the hell's going on? Just part and parcel of the left-wing approach to life. They're not content to allow people to cling to their guns and religion. Right, what about Kanye West going on? Lex Friedman, coding the gurus. Look on this. Who is a musician, seems to be undergoing various mental health issues, but most notably has been making various public anti-Semitic statements and extreme claims about conspiracy. So Lex deciding to host him, knowing that that is likely to happen, is obviously going to be a lightning rod for attention and criticism and that kind of thing. So let's just hear a little bit of the kind of things that Kanye was saying on Lex's podcast. What do you think they put me right now? They put me as the prophet, not the leader. It doesn't have to be the leader, right? Because we, we, need, we need a more uh, intelligent person to be the leader. But at least, right, they put me as the prophet. They put me as the only person that would say this. And I'm just saying that was four Jewish members that controlled my voice because for the fact that 
90% of black people in entertainment from sports to music to acting are in some way tied into Jewish business people, meaning that in some way, just like if, if Rom is sitting next to Obama or Jared sitting next to Trump, there's a Jewish person right there controlling the, the, the country, the Jewish people controlling that who gets the best video or not, controlling what the media says about it's a me. person, not Jewish. Let me just say what they, they, but they are, though. That's the only thing. It just so happens that they are. It just you happens saying, that they are. That doesn't a, mean that I hate them. Yes, that yes. just means that they are. Well, Chris, I mean, foreshadowing the current uh, decoding just a little bit, I think it's um, brave and important to start seeing race like Kanye is doing. You know, he's, he's just noticing that the racial identity of the people that are oppressing him. So what yeah. we have to indicate with that. <laughs> yeah, it's not a subtle heaping of anti-Semitic tropes. It's it's like the entire container has been poured into the cup, right? Yeah. So there's lots of that throughout the two and a half hour interview with Lex. And to Lex's credit, he pushed back more than I anticipated. He did compare Kanye's rhetoric to Goebbels, or Goebbels, 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 however you pronounce his name, the Nazi propagandist. And he pointed out, you know, it's dehumanizing. He's talking about groups. So I think Lex deserves credit to some extent for pushing back. However, it's still Lex. So the pushback it's relatively limited in scope and it's still accompanied by fawning prayers for Kanye. And it's unclear what advantage to the world or how this serves love by platforming someone like this. It definitely serves Lex's download metrics, but in his mission to make the world a better place, is that achieved by letting people hear Kanye rant, rant about the Jews? Yeah, I think this particular episode last I looked was 2 million in downloads, Chris, and uh, his typical downloads are like 200,000. So uh, it certainly worked in that sense. Yeah, so, one wonders what the, what the point of having a public heart-to-heart with, with Kanye about this would be? Yeah, like, I mean, he, Kanye's also a hardcore Christian. And so he views abortion as, you know, he makes these parallels about the, the true Holocaust is black children being aborted in America. One At one point, his solution that he offers to that is that he's going to buy land and build farm slash monasteries where people can study engineering, which is the only subject that he thinks people should be allowed to study. And you're just like, is it worthwhile to hear <laughs> this, this, yeah. these kind of solutions and stuff, you know? And in any case, the other aspect of it that I wanted to highlight was there's a part during the interview where Lex seems genuinely hurt by something Kanye says, and it comes here. Well, some of it I pointed out today, but I don't what know you deeply enough. What was the bullshit? Jewish media, Jewish... That's not bullshit. The bullshit is that the Jewish media no, no. won't admit... Your dad was right. Your dad was right. The words you used, the, you weren't... The and point I you said were... it. You're not going to make me say it 800 more times. I don't know if it resonated because you keep saying like the words. Did it resonate to y'all that y'all ain't do nothing about it? And that all y'all want to do is have somebody apologize and sweep under the rug your bullshit that you've been doing the whole time. You, you want the same bullshit as the other people. So you're doing the same thing that the other, let's say media, because I'm not allowed to yeah. say, has done. So until somebody which is what, which is what, man, is, which is what is I'm trying to call you out in your bullshit because I hope I'm somebody you can trust. That's I don't it. fucking trust you. Well, you should find people in your life you can trust. Don't tell me what I should do. I'm not one of your BLM marchers. But belligerent man, he's a belligerent man. <laughs> yeah, it, it is interesting, isn't it? Um, those two personalities rubbing up against each other because you have the soft, squishy, the civility porn where personal relationships of mutual love and understanding is the foundation for everything. This is the man who believed he could go to Ukraine and Russia and sit down and connect personally with, with Putin and Zelensky and sort things out that way. And having that rub up against Kanye's more abrasive personality is, is kind of fun to hear. Yeah, but that, that pause, like the long pause where Lex seems hurt that Kanye says he doesn't trust him, that struck me at the time and it struck many people that listened because they, they pointed out that you know Lex seemed upset about that. And indeed he is. So later on, he brings it up again here fix them i see that's what you're trying to do and you probably listen people should not doubt yay but i gotta tell you i have to be honest i don't this is silly because you don't know me but it, it hurt when you say you don't trust me you kind of lost me i don't think anyone's ever said that to me i don't know man fuck that you know, i'm not i don't care about uh, views or clickbait or any of that bullshit i just thought you were one of the great greatest artists ever 
It'd be cool to talk to you. And I just, I feel like you got pain you're working through. I never had anyone say that to me. I, I, maybe I'm just being a mess about it, I guess. It's fucked up though. But maybe it's not. Maybe you shouldn't trust it. But, but I just haven't had that experience. I, yeah. Do you think I would trust anybody at this point in my life? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. I hear you. And uh, I, it's, it's also kind of good to see how much strength you got. You're not broken by any of this. You're under a lot of attack. A lot of attack by a lot of people. You have a vision and you're trying to feel your way through it. And you might get destroyed for it. That's the human, uh, that's the risk you take. Yeah, Matt. So what's, what's Kanye's vision that he's getting attacked for? What's that? You know, that's the flip side of Lex. Like, yes, he does pull Kanye up repeatedly on the anti-Semitism thing, but there he's kind of like, you know, but yeah, I get it, man. You're, you're just fighting for your truth and your strong personality and something like, but what's he saying, Lex? What's yeah. his, what's the vision he's telling the world that the Jews are running and have been keeping him down? <laughs> right. Yeah. It does give you insight into to Lex's personality because I think he, in the moment, just completely forgot about that. What he was focused on was that Kanye kind of offered him a road out of well, the, insult, the personal insult, the, the, yeah. the personal insult, which, which he could then reciprocate and saying, yeah, you know, you, you, you know, you find it hard to trust anyone. And that's why, that's why you don't trust me. It's not that you don't like me. I get it. I, I get, get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. He's just such a, such a soft person. <laughs> like, well, like, like, is this an odd way to approach? Like, this is a big ticket interview. It's not a private chat. It's a public broadcast. And how Lex approaches it is emblematic of that emphasis on establishing those strong, warm, beautiful, trusting interpersonal relationships and treating that as the foundation, the bedrock upon which any kind of sense making or whatever can be made. And you contrast that with the old fashioned way of doing it, the way a professional journalist would do it. Someone like one of our recent guests, Helen Lewis, when she approached someone like Jordan Peterson, which mm -hmm. is to not try to become best friends with them in the moment yeah. live, but rather to be a tough journalist, ask the difficult questions, not let them wriggle out. And if they don't like you, that's fine. Yeah, that's in large part what the guru's fear is offering as an alternative, right? Because it, it doesn't claim to be that. It claims to be more this, let's have a three-hour conversation and, and become like intimately close and treat you not as a somebody who deserves to be cross-examined, but just as a person. But you you see the limitations of that approach when it comes to Lex actually having to grapple with somebody just openly promoting anti-Semitism. And it comes across as strange, the fixation on like your hurt feelings that somebody's saying they don't trust you because Kanye is a celebrity and you're a podcaster, unless there's some secret relationship, you know, or ongoing behind the scenes. It's completely unclear why you would expect, like that's a weird thing to expect someone to have this level of trust directed towards you because why? Why would you trust a, a stranger interviewing you? It's, it's very interesting. Like I said before, this insight into the kind of sheltered crash type world in which these independent podcasters live, in which all of the interviews are softball interviews. All of them are complimenting each other on what wonderful human beings they are and essentially engaging in mutual backbiting and cross-promotion. Kanye, despite being apparently a raving lunatic, is actually, in a sense, a much more normal person in approaching this, which is, why the hell are you wanting to be my best friend? <laughs> yeah, I know there are other moments in the interview where he kind of panders to legs like, talking about the importance of Lex as an engineer and all this kind of stuff. So it's just, it's a, you know, people can listen to it. It's up to Lex who he wants to platform and stuff. But I just don't like, Lex has this stance where he presents himself as a martyr, willing to take the slings and arrows because he's going to have these conversations with controversial figures on his subreddit, the like pinned thing from Lex, the pinned message is saying, in the next couple of years, I'm going to have controversial guests. I'll get attacked from all sides, but you guys know my heart, right? And it's it like, that stuff veers to me into manipulative guru territory where you're telling the people like, you know, all criticisms of me for platforming people like Kanye, they're illegitimate because I've got a good heart. And you people who are, you know, the, the real people, the people that have known me for long, you will know that all those attacks aren't real and they're going to say mean things about me trying to get attention and stuff. And it's, it feels manipulative, but also in Lex's case, it probably is earnest that that's how he sees himself, but you can be earnest and manipulative. Yeah, I feel it is It is earnest. But yeah, like you say, the, the genuine aspects there can dovetail quite nicely and be self-serving in, in various ways, which is interesting. Another little bit of foreshadowing of the episode we're going to do. And uh, but anyway...
Okay, that's just a quick little excerpt from the latest edition of Decoding the Guru. So I'm going back to the beach, going to take a, a second dip for today, go for a bit of a walk, have, have a late lunch, get ready to go to synagogue tonight. So that's it for now. Take care. Bye-bye.